everyone. Welcome to Fluency, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of yoga and psychology, a place to consider all aspects of our humanness and tools to bring home to our own inner lives. I'm Livia Cohen Shapiro. I'm a mama, a wife, a yoga teacher, a somatic therapist, and I'm the founder of Applied Psychology for Yogis and the School for Ecstatic Unfoldment. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Enjoy. Okay, so welcome everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And I'm sitting here with my dear friend and colleague, Lexi Chatara Middleton. And Lexi and I had the great good fortune of meeting one another at Naropa, uh, where we both attended our masters of um, counseling there. And we just quickly became very dear friends and we get to have our kiddos play with each other now. And Lexi is someone who approaches her work with a lot of tenacity and spaciousness and warmth and heart. And she has specific expertise in working with individuals who are in the middle of an extreme state. And she's going to talk to us quite a bit about extreme states and psychosis and spiritual bypass and um, some other really important ways of showing up like basic attendance and unconditional positive regard and um, also some ways that you might start to really become aware of that this very fine and interesting line of psychosis and spiritual emergence, which mm-hmm. can sometimes play out in the context of yoga and other um, psycho-spiritual, emotional processes, especially of you know, physical. So um, I can't say enough good things about my dear friend Lexi, and, um, and I really hope you enjoy this interview with her, and we'll carry on. So Lexi, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about this. And um, so tell us a little bit about um, about you and about your work and um, your experience with this area of psychology. Mm-hmm. Like you said, we graduated together from the Somatic Counseling Psychology Program at Naropa, and right after graduating, I began working at um, an organization here in Boulder called Windhorse Community Services. And Windhorse is, well, I'll go into Windhorse, but let me say that um, I'm a registered psychotherapist in the state of Colorado and a registered dance movement therapist. So dance movement therapy is my uh, theoretical orientation, and that is under the umbrella of somatic psychology, as you know. Um... So yes, I, I worked at Windhorse uh, upon graduating from Naropa, and I began there in a role called a, a basic attender, which is really the foundation of Windhorse. And Windhorse is an organization which works with people in extreme mind states, or we might say it's an organization that um, works with people who have been given a diagnosis, and saying that using extreme mind states and given diagnoses as not identifying somebody as a schizophrenic or, you know, because we all experience mind states in certain times in our life. Um, So it's a a community-based treatment of mental, um, extreme mental states. 
meaning that we create teams, individualized teams around a client, and many clients come from all over the country, and many have been hospitalized for years and years and years. Um, so this is, it tends to be an outlet for family and people who want to try something different. So we create individualized, home-based, therapeutic teams. And so I started there as a basic attender, which is the foundation of Wintourse. And basic attendance basically is attending basically to another human being. So showing up in that moment for whatever is present for that person. Um, Three-hour shifts, which allows for enough time to pass where you can really feel into what is needed and allows for kind of a beginning, middle, and end for your time with somebody and long enough to happen relationally, transpersonally between the two people on the shift together. And are you actively, let's say, if you're on a three-hour shift, mm -hmm. you're not actively doing what I think most people would consider psychotherapy. No. It's a lot of, like, daily tasks and Absolutely. communication, and it yeah. looks more real life. It looks more real life, and there is in, so a Windhorse team is comprised of basic attenders, uh, who are kind of the worker ants, like the front, the front people. Um, and then there is an intensive psychotherapist who will see a client for a session either once or twice a week, depending on the need. And then there is a team leader who's kind of the case manager and they oversee the team meetings and the house. Sometimes the client will live with a housemate. So the team leader will supervise the housemate and the housemate and the client together and how things are going in their physical living environment. And then there's a team supervisor who uh, really is overlooking the health and sanity and well-being of the entire team. And their role is also to speak with the family members. Mm. So they kind of protect the basic contenders and the team leader and the IP, the intensive psychotherapist, from the family in right. some way. So I, when I, I don't currently work at Windhorse because I have a child. But when I left there, I was in the role of a team leader. So I worked directly with um, the team supervisor and the intensive psychotherapist in the leadership role of the team, supervising and also spending one-on-one -on -one time with the client. Mm -hmm. So that's where I left Windhorse. And I was there for 2012 to 2016. And I also did my practicum there. So right. I feel like I've been there for... A good part of my career. And when you're in the role of, well, I guess it could occur in any of the roles, but most specifically with the, if you're in the role of being a basic attender, have you experienced where the client experiences their time with you as inherently therapeutic? Like it's not just the time with the intent, like, Correct. With the intensive psychotherapist, it's like that's the thing that's helping them emerge from an extreme state Correct. or you know, just helping them live their life in that state. Yes, so all of it. So um, the idea being that when you basically attend to another person, um, that you're really being present for them, and that in itself is therapeutic. And some people argue that that's what therapy direct psychotherapy is about. It's not so much about what intervention you're doing, but that it's simply about being present and witnessing somebody and allowing them the space. Um, and, and in every role of Ventoris, everybody's per performing basic attendance. Mm -hmm. From the basic attenders to 
the team supervisor. Um, that being said, if there is very deep material that is coming up between a basic attender and a client, let's say about um, maybe somebody at relapse or they're talking about really deep uh, storylines in their psychotic processes, like that would be something that a basic attender is trained to say, this sounds really important, I'm here to listen, but also you should probably tell so-and-so your psychotherapist and let's make sure that you share that with them. And when I'm in the team meeting, you know, I will be sharing with the team. I mean, there's kind of an understanding that there's no, besides between the psychotherapist and the client, really the team is there to communicate with each other mm -hmm. so that nothing slips through the cracks. Because it really is sometimes about um, life and, and death and, and that kind of work. Mm -hmm. I When we first sat down to start this interview, this was not the question I plan, was planning <laughs> on asking you. But as another mom, let's have that ditty on how basic attendance relates to mothering? Well, it relates many ways. So first of all, I actually do think that being at Windhorse has totally prepared me to be mm -hmm. with my son in the way that um, I can, not all the time, but I can show up for him and just be present. So whatever I had planned or, um, you know, I can catch my own mind wandering it really is a mindfulness practice so just noticing my own mind my own body and then relating and directing and attuning to my son so and that's what basic attendance is just being present and showing up for whatever is happening and not trying to control it because ultimately you can't mm -hmm. um, and just a little tidbit that I was also pregnant when I was working at Windhorse and that so mothering with a child in utero, um, it was definitely impactful. And he's, he was in utero sitting in on all kinds of meetings right. and very intense, um, you know, crises and hospitalizations and talking with, and he got, you know, got to know people. And after he came, he met people. So he's in that world as well because he was there in utero. And have you noticed an imprint in him like now at more than a year old, do you feel like as his personality is emerging, you see some an imprint there that of how you spent your time when you were pregnant? I mean, I wonder if part of his personality is quite serious. I mean, he's goofy too, but um, you know, he was around a lot of serious mm -hmm. things, mm -hmm. serious talk and energy. And um, so I think he has that kind of watching quality, watching and taking in. Mm -hmm. Well, since you mentioned this piece around um, it being a mindfulness practice, can you talk to us a little bit about like the roots of Windhorse and some of the like, um, also the, um, I guess the pillars of this theory and method in terms of um, like mindfulness and um, meditation and mm -hmm. just some of its like background, because it sounds like, I mean, for those, those listening who are yoga, meditation folks, mm -hmm. can you draw that yes. link for us a little bit? Yes, and I also won't pretend that I'm an expert. There's so many people that could speak about the lineage of Windhorse um, much more clearly and nuanced than I can, but I do know some of it. So Windhorse 
uh, is it's a it's a Buddhist Shambhala inspired way of working with extreme states. So it was Naropa students um, consulting with Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche here in Boulder, um, and then it began as just a tiny little seed. Mm. Um, and then Dr. Ed Podville really was the one who. Um, expanded on the theory and the structure and how it works and why and what is basic attendance and what are the skills of basic attendance and Jeff Fortuna is also another name worked very closely with Dr. Podville um, and it started I think in like two teams like one or two teams mm-hmm. um, just kind of naturally were created around some people um, in extreme mind states that needed more support and it kind of became a like a research project and has since then um, grown to uh, Northampton. I think there's a little wind horse in Austin, Texas, uh, Vienna, Austria, Boulder. And I'm sure there's seeds of it mm-hmm. elsewhere, wind horse style teams right. elsewhere. Um, but the one of the big grounds is obviously the foundation is basic attendance and also the people that work at wind horse are you don't have to be a Buddhist or a practicing Buddhist to work there, but you are um, encouraged and supported to have a mindfulness practice. Um, and that is to get to know your own mind. Because when you're working with people in extreme states, you have to know your own extremes and you have to really um, meticulously watch what's happening for yourself. Um, and I, I will say right here that being at Windhorse as a somatic psychotherapist, um, and there's a lot of attention placed on the mind and, and meditation specifically. And so it was a unique place for me to kind of bring in my learning in terms of being a somatic, mm-hmm. more body-oriented person, and also a challenge for myself to um, be still and work on you know my mind and meditation as well as bring in the body and really be working as a, a clinician who knows that the mind and body are connected. Mm-hmm. So I'll say that. Um, <clears throat> so yes, we are encouraged to have a regular mindfulness practice and many people go away on retreats. Um, there's many opportunities like in the beginning of meetings, sometimes people will begin with meditation. Um, so there's space for that and there's meditation instruction if I've done a Maitri space awareness through wind horse as a way to understand I don't know how many of your listeners or your students um, know about Maitri space awareness but it's a way to understand different energies um, in yourself and then so you can recognize them in other people and know oh that really I feel very comfortable around somebody who leads with this energy and I that energy is really hard for me, and mm. so just mm. you know, so there, and that's you, a form of mindfulness. Can you give us like one example? Yes. So, <sighs> because I feel like so that's true. Like that shows up. Well, it shows up in like the somatic work as a somatic therapist, right? Like tracking, identifying, and tracking sensations. Yeah. You getting really comfortable with the sensory experience of emotional content and personality development and mm-hmm. then you're starting to map that in yourself so that then whoever comes to the door you're starting to get really clear on what's your own stuff what's yeah. their stuff 
what you can tolerate and all and all of that. Yeah. And the tr- same is true with teaching yoga. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to know like where our limits are, right? Yeah. Like, can you actually do that demo? Um, and also, like, part of it too is is working with understanding our mind and understanding our body and personality, so that we don't end up working with people where we actually can't really help them. Okay. Well, the five Buddha families. Each family um, has a wisdom quality and a more neurotic quality, or you could say shadow and light um and there's five and each are associated with a color so when you do my tree spatial space awareness you're in a certain body position so it's actually a mind body mindfulness mm-hmm. practice you're meditating in a certain position um, in a certain colored room which is all the color of that family so um that but the vajra um is blue but this is an example I'll leave with because I tend to be Vatra, which is in the wisdom aspect, it can be very highly intelligent. You have a lot of this in you too. Highly intelligent and academic and wanting to learn and there's a wisdom quality. And then in the, the shadow, more shadow side, more neurotic side is kind of over controlling tightness, rigidity. Um, yeah, that kind of thing. So, Another family is the, the Buddha family, and that is white. The color is white, and that's associated with really a lot of spaciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the wisdom quality. And then the neurotic quality is like so spacious that you just kind of float away, and it's a, the ether. Like you just can't connect, you can't root down. So I've worked with some people in my life where. There's a lot of Buddha energy, and um, my kind of Vajra, I'm trying to grab them. Like, where are you? Like, don't float away from me. I Like, I'm trying to, it's hard for me to connect because it's kind of this kind of la-la-la, floaty, trying to describe it in a way that makes sense. Whereas I need more, I need the answers, so what are we going to do now? What's coming next? And um, so when I feel that energy, uh, I notice that, we all have all these families in us. You know, it's not like you're only this and you're only that. I but one neurosis can stimulate the other neurosis. Yes, from the other family. Absolutely. And then you're like in this dueling space yes. where nobody's really meeting or yeah. connecting. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, it can even happen in the body. You know, if you're in Tadasana and like the feet, you can see somebody's feet are just not planted on the earth, you know, it's kind of like uh-huh. a flight, or if you shake somebody's hand and it's literally limp. Yeah. Um, so there could be body elements to some of these families, whereas, uh, what did I say? Vajra could be very rigid. kind of rigid or militant and not very relaxed, you could say, perhaps. Um, and that's just coming from my own right. theories and thought about the type of the family. Well, what Lexi has not told you yet is that she's a very avid yoga practitioner. Have you experienced with these five Buddha families, have you experienced like the more of that body aspect that you were just saying in the practice of yoga? Like you gave Tadasana as, a, as an example. I, again, I'm theorizing here. I would say that certain asanas would be, could be harder for some people that lead heavily mm. 
with one or the other mm-hmm. um, of the Buddha families. Also, for instance, when I was doing my tree space awareness and I was practicing the Vajra blue in the blue room in that position, that position happened to be particularly painful and that practice was hard for me to, to be in. It was hard for me to be in my body, hard for me to mm. watch my mind because I was like surrounded by myself. And it was, you know, it's like, get me out of here. I don't want to see myself. I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I'm theorizing that if you lead highly with the Buddha family, then a particular asana, maybe you can give me one, that is very grounding um, and that you really need to have a lot of stability and rooting might be right troublesome. Right. Or more difficult than something else. Well, the overarching theme I'm hearing is like doing my tree space awareness and you're sitting in the room and it's that color and you're surrounded by yourself. Mm -hmm. There are asanas that we have affinity to and aversion to. And when we start playing with all aspects on the spectrum of affinity and aversion and then add in this game of like timings, there you are. There's like, you're just in yourself. There's so much of yourself. Um, There's something really interesting about holding a standing pose for two minutes yeah, or being in an inversion for however many minutes. Or um, a lot of times I think this comes up in yin yoga and restorative Mm -hmm. yoga. Mm -hmm. Like you stay in a shape, granted you're supported, but you're asked to be in um, a shape that yields a certain energetic quality for upwards of, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And you're, uh, you have to really watch your mind. Yes. So, and that's, that's the room of your mind. That's what you want to get out of there. So it's all mindfulness practice as is basic attendance. When you're with somebody in extreme mind state or you're experiencing an extreme yourself, because we can all go there. Some people go there more often and it's more a part of who they are. But if you're not watching your, your mind as a clinician, or if you're a yoga teacher who's working with somebody who might be experiencing an extreme state, if you're not watching what's happening in your body and in your mind, you can easily kind of lose track of what's somebody, you know, what's theirs, what's mine. Um, and then you aren't using your mind or your body as a tool to perhaps suss out what that other person might be experiencing or right. what support they might need. Right. Well, let's talk about that. Like, what are some of the hallmarks of extreme mind states, psychosis in and regard and and especially in difference to like spiritual emergence. Mm-hmm. So um, many people that I worked with at Windhorse had experienced a, a spiritual awakening, whatever words you want to use, spiritual emergence, a powerful spiritual experience, um, and and what brought the experience on? It was like either they went to. They, they went to an ashram or they were like, they happened to like get some sort of cosmic download or like what precipitates the spiritual whatever. I think it can be different. Obviously it's different for everybody, but so there's, there's what you just said made me think of two different happenings. Mm-hmm. Um, so somebody who has an experience, a spiritual experience, that's very powerful that um, they then later down the road might experience extreme mind states or even psychosis out of that. And I think there's also people that um, experience extreme mind states and then make sense of them 
through the lens or the context of spiritual storylines. Uh-huh. Um, and I want to make clear that somebody who has a powerful spiritual experience is not necessarily not psychotic right. every time, nor will they experience extreme states or psychosis. Um, and also that that is a cultural label. So many right. other cultures, if you have a very powerful spiritual experience, um, it might be more accepted in a different culture and seen differently than as here where we might say, oh, that person had a psychotic break after they, you know, were in an ashram or meditating for days and days and days, you know, might be seen differently. So we're talking in a specific cultural lens right now. And there's a, there's sort of a catch there because on the one hand, like we um, live in a culture where there's this idea of what mental health is and this idea of what spirituality is. Mm -hmm. And when there's the line gets blurry, we just don't have a ton of resources to really be able to help people have a spiritual awakening and ground it as such and name it as such and just move on. Like, you know, like, you know, all of talk, my daughter talks to the trees all the time. Like nobody thinks that's weird because she's a child. But if I was walking around talking, you know, whispering to the trees, that might seem weird to someone. But what if I was like actually like trying to communicate that that was part of my spiritual practice. Yeah. And we just don't live in this, wide open culture around that and then the other side is like well if we are in this uh sort of micro area such as okay i'm doing most of my work in the yoga world Mm -hmm. what there's a risk of not catching things absolutely because we're like oh it's you know it's a spiritual experience they're having a spiritual awakening and then next thing we know there's it's really not that Mm mm-hmm Yes. So I have a book sitting in front of me. If any of your students are interested, it's called Recovering Sanity. And it is by Dr. Edward Podville. And it's kind of the, the text that we go to at Windhorse. Um, and the first chapter is on just this very question. So if anybody is interested, I highly recommend it. And the first chapter is about, it's a case study about a man who lived many years ago, but having, um, spiritual awakening that spiraled I would I'll use the word spiral because that's the word that Dr. Powell uses into some into an extreme state that he then could not get out of mm-hmm. so psychosis essentially um, <clears throat> so that I highly recommend if anybody's interested in this topic um, I think in my experience the people that I've known <clears throat> who are actively in an extreme state and also that might have not necessarily been triggered but they've also experienced a spiritual a powerful spiritual experience I think one thing that might be useful for you and other uh, yoga teachers is when you really feel a split between when you can see that something like literally see that somebody's not living in their body like they're a walking floating head um, or maybe don't even want to which is interesting because if you're going to a yoga class you would think that somebody might want to be in their body so I don't know how often you would see this but people that I've been with that are actively psychotic um, there's this absence of knowing it's almost like they don't have a body 
So I will go into somebody's physical space and it'll be the middle of summer and it's 85 degrees or 90 degrees in somebody's home. And they're sitting there like it's perfectly comfortable. Um, or there was another person I worked with who would be wintertime and they would have their AC blasting. Mm. But then they'd go outside and they put a coat on. But then you go in their apartment and it was frigid. You know, like almost like the physical environment, like they didn't have any needs in their body. Also eating. Like eating is forgotten um, or you only eat bread. You know, it's like, oh. and also I've had people say to me, I don't want to have a body. I don't want to have any needs, any earthly needs. Um, and they're... The just, transcendence of the body absolutely. is like the m- most extreme, massive yes. way you could imagine. Yes. And some people can speak about it and say, literally, I don't want this thing. And uh-huh. some people show it to you or I, I see it. Like I just, like the, uh, my, like I'm freezing and they're totally fine. And I'm thinking, what is going on? Like, how can they not, um, cause they're in their mind and they're in their psychotic process, which probably has them in a totally different plane of consciousness. Yeah. Or, or there's, a, there's a different storyline yeah. happening. And some people will talk about that and some people it's totally hidden in private and you'll never know exactly what, is happening in there in that part of their mind. So I would say that the to look for <clears throat> and when you say storyline, do you mean like there's a running, there's like something the whole other world. There's a whole another world there's happening. A whole another world you happening. can't see it, they can see it, and yeah. they're um, actively att- like paying attention to that other yes. world. Yeah. Yes. And they're coming in and out. And sometimes uh-huh. they're all in your world and sometimes they're all in the other world. And I always like to think, because sometimes people share with you right. this other world, this other storylines, what's happening for them. Um, and I never, obviously, you don't ever question it because to them it's real. Right. What's happening? It's part of their mind. Um, but in, in this book, Recovering Sanity, <clears throat> they specifically talk about Percival's experience. Uh, he started really seeking out these stories. He, he had had a powerful spiritual experience. And then instead of it being grounded or he was able to share it and talk about it and it was accepted and people listened to his story, he kept trying to attain, get back to it, uh-huh. to claim it, to have it all the time. Um, so therefore his his ego was wrapped up in it. And he if he didn't attain it or claim it, he wasn't holy enough. Mm-hmm. And he had to do more, work harder, eat less, sleep less, fast, whatever, to attain it again. Um, And then all his, they talk about how when we doubt ourselves, when you have a moment where you're like, is that true? Is that thing I feel or or said, or is that storyline about needing to go to the gym after doing this, is that true? Like, is that, or, so doubt is a healthy um, mental process. And when you override your doubt, as in the case of Percival, then you start spiraling down and moving into this other world that then becomes your reality because you're no longer doubting it. So doubt is a whole, one of the hallmarks of a health of, of health, a health a health and a healthy ego structure yes. and a healthy witness function. Yes, this sort of like self questioning, like is this real? Yes. Yeah. And not just in the sense of oh, is that image or that 
um, auditory hallucination real, but like just in everything. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we can think about it for ourselves. As worry, I mean, yeah. like ever since I became a mom, my, my OCD that manifests in extreme worry. Sometimes I have to really catch myself and ask myself, okay, is this like this real? Yeah, you know, is and and really actually listen to this other voice that shows up a lot as like doubt or questioning or you know not just accepting whatever my mind is perseverating on exactly are there other hallmarks of um a spiritual awakening or spiritual emergence that one might track for themselves or look like see in those around them versus the extreme state? Um, I think, I mean, there's something about the quality of, of, um, hiding. Like, if, obviously, if you're experiencing having a spiritual awakening or something really deep is moving in you, it's very personal. Um, but if, if you're hiding it for some reason or not, you're hiding it from your family, hiding it, or not so much embarrassment. Um, if you're in a community where other people aren't spiritual or religious mm-hmm. in any way, um, but if it becomes something fear-based, like if you're not sure what it is or what it means and you're not willing to speak about it, to mm-hmm. hear support and have people witness you, that to me would be... Like, what is that? Mm-hmm. What's that about? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answered your question. Um, but a quality well, of hiding. Yeah, or even secrecy. Yeah. Or fear and fear-based. Uh-huh. Um, it can be, I think it's, we all experience things that it's hard to make sense of, um, and they aren't personal, and you might think about it and let it sit and integrate and digest. But if it's not, it's like anything in your life. If you're keeping it to yourself or not sharing it or hiding it, and it becomes a kind of a game, and like, what is that about? But I've ex- and I and I've experienced that in my work at, at Windhorse. What about um, like I mean, especially living in Boulder, being around Naropa, and like so much mm. yoga and meditation. You know, you know how the thing is mm-hmm. here in Boulder. And there's like a lot. Of, there's like a cultural trend where we live to make meaning, mm-hmm. and sometimes to to our own detriment, like. You know, the song on the radio meant this, or the song in Whole Foods meant this, or I picked this angel card and it's this. And can you talk to us a little bit about like, um, like when when the meaning making process or the search for the Mm -hmm. like when the desire for like for the phenomenal world to be speaking to Mm -hmm. you becomes like whoa, it gets like out of control. Yeah. Well, I can. What I can say is that that is. Huge. Not that people who think that, like I'm in Whole Foods and this song came on, are experiencing an extreme state, but that the people that I work with that are psychotic, that is... That's their entire... That's present right. all the time. Right. So everything becomes like that. And instead of having... I mean, I'll, I can speak about it from the Windhorse sense, which is you become so involved in your own mind that you literally can't get off the hamster wheel. Mm-hmm. So every thought you have in your within your mind becomes your reality and you don't have that doubt 
where you're saying, where you're catching it and saying, huh, I'm having this, like, why do I want to, why does that song mean something to me? And why do I want it to mean something? And does it? And my, is that true? If you're anxious about your kids or your daughter and you think that if you put them asleep in this hot room, that, no, is that, is that true? And, um, <clears throat> or everything. I mean, I've worked with people who are severely psychotic where the UPS truck that passes or the mail truck that passes by their home is the FBI or the, you know, they're watching him and their surveillance and this, these, even it can get so complex that these letters, when they're this far apart, is a sign that somebody's telling me this mess. You know, you could literally create your own language or see something different. So what I would say is from the Buddhist perspective is that really it's all our stories. I mean, when we say anything, even what we're saying now, what I'm speaking about, it's all, you know, essentially we're empty. Um, but to feel that it can be scary. Um, so anything that I'm thinking is simply that, it's simply a, a thought that I have because of who I am and where I grew up, but it's not necessarily true. I mean, it's just me having my thoughts. Like when you're meditating, yeah, you're watching your thoughts, and they're just that. They're just your, not that they're not important, but. But we don't have to. Attach. Right. Attach, and that you're saying, hmm, that's interesting, that's curious. You're looking at it, and then you're letting it go. Okay. And then you're looking at it, and you're letting it go. So all that is just your meaning making and then you're letting it go over and over and over and over and over and it never ever stops. It's prof I mean, it's profound. I did want to say something about if you feel like as a yoga teacher or somebody in a movement practice, if you do feel like for whatever reason you're with somebody who might be experiencing a mind uh, extreme mind state, that there are some mindfulness or movement practices that probably would not be beneficial okay so let's hear that um for instance like certain breathing yeah techniques um i don't know all the lingo yeah yeah but um what's you know like the breath work where you're really holding in for long periods and letting go and holding in letting go or breath of fire yeah that anything that could um overstimulate your nervous system, uh-huh. essentially, or, you know, ecstatic dancing, that kind of thing. Um, because essentially you don't want to, you want to ground and you want people to become present in every moment in the sense of what do you see? What do you smell? Um, what does it feel like to have your feet on the floor? What is the floor? What's the texture of the floor? Like you don't want people to go up and out. Up and out. You want to come into the moment, into the space, into your body. And like I said, many people in extreme mind states are not living in their bodies. Right. So helping them in very, very, very small ways to begin to cultivate a relationship with their body in the present moment. And I would imagine if you said to someone who's in that state, oh, notice the sensation in your body, that might be like, whoa, I don't even really have a body. So you might have to start with something really concrete. Like, do you see that there's feet on the floor? Yeah. Those are your feet. Yeah. Right. Just sort of like, uh, I remember when Olive was really little and just, I don't know, can't remember at this point how old she was, but she was teeny tiny, but she realized she had feet 
like the fit that her feet were like attached to her and she was sitting in one of those like little pod snuggly thingies and she became obsessed with like spreading her toes pushing her foot into the edge and she was like fascinated by this thing that like realized that she had these feet and the feet were attached to her body and if she did something they would move Mm -hmm. and I could just I would imagine that it's a very similar process of like you have a body Mm -hmm. these are your feet Mm -hmm. you can make them move Mm -hmm. absolutely and sometimes it has to be even more tricky than Mm -hmm. that like not tricky in the sense of deceiving but tricky in the sense of subtle helping Uh somebody be in their body without saying we're going to be in the body in your body now you know because that's scary right if if somebody's not in their body there's a wisdom quality to why they're not existing Mm. there Mm -hmm. Um, which could be true you know in all of this extreme states doesn't just mean psychosis so i'm sure you and some of your students have encountered people who you know laying in shavasana if you sit if you cue to close your eyes that could be too much right maybe there's been trauma um, of some sort and that's just not safe for somebody so extreme states isn't just psychosis so it's not you know i mean you know way more about that about also working with people who've experienced high levels of of trauma and how to know when that might be happening and then obviously for you as a yoga teacher then hands-on work and adjustments thinking about that and so extreme states aren't just, you know, what we think of as psychotic. Uh-huh. Talk to us also a little bit about um, spiritual bypass, how John Wellwood has um, defined it, which is like there's such a hole. Well, he calls it an occupational hazard of the spiritual path. It's like something that, immer- like on our path, to spiritual awakening our daily life gets in the way and Mm. we're going to want to turn away from that Mm -hmm. and go on this other path Mm -hmm. and actually one of the best things we can do for ourselves is attend to our daily life and our bills and Mm -hmm. um, being present with like reality that is shared as opposed to reality that is personal deeply singular which sometimes get masquerade as the one. Yeah. Like, you know, an experience of oneness. Yeah. There's a lot of conflation around that. Well, I mean, I think that ties back to what I was speaking about earlier in terms of when you, and again, I'm working with people who are in a particular place in their lives um, and are in extreme states. So, um, those who have had a spiritual experience and are actively in an extreme state, I mean, that is what happens. That they're, right. they're, you don't want to deal with, I mean, why would you want to deal with your family who's calling you saying, why don't you have a job yet? Why can't you hold on a job? Um, or go to the grocery store and do something as boring as meal plan and grocery shop when you could you know, be in your mind with whatever you're trying to, with trying to get back to that thing that you felt Mm -hmm. um, and not have needs that tie you to other people Mm -hmm. or your body um, and then make you actually have to show up in the world. So I think what you just described is, and that's what is actively happening 
right? That kind of spiritual bypass is like the whole game of the... Yeah. Not to say others who want to turn away from those everyday things are psychotic. Sure, (laughs) sure, of course. But if if somebody is, then there is that. Like, you don't want to do anything. Right, right. Besides attain that, feel that again, and it becomes something that you're seeking as a constant rather than this is something that I experienced and I felt and maybe I'll feel it again or maybe I'll have that connection to that again. Um, and also, I'm in this place in this world and I have these tasks that I need to do and this person I need to tend to or my relationship. Yeah. I'm just so struck by, um, well, I want to say this and then I also want to talk about Lars and the Real Girl because <laughs> when we were at Naropa, we would talk about Lars and the Real Girl, which is a perfect example yeah. of some of these terms that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, but I'm really struck of this thing you're saying about like the desire to seek out what, what one experienced as the spiritual awakening, yeah. like again and again and again. And that kind of sets us, sets them on a path of towards the extreme state, because I do think that there is, a really interesting phenomenon, like very physically speaking, in asana, there's a tendency for people to seek the sensations that correspond to the end range of motion mm. of a joint or a muscle. Like, okay, I'm really in the pose if I mm-hmm. feel this kind of sensation. And so then we keep seeking that again and again mm-hmm. and again and again in the practice. And then we end up with like a tweaked out hamstring or yeah. a you know, messed up shoulder. And so <clears throat> there's a lot of talk in the in the yoga world as of late um, around actually not going to the mm-hmm. end range of motion. And then what's the sensation of that? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people are trained to keep going to that extreme wow. end. Yeah. And especially in my practice, I've been exploring that a lot. And like, whoa, what's this other subtler dimension mm-hmm. when I'm not in that end range of motion? Mm-hmm. Um, like, what if I practice at 75%? And what does that do? And and I also remember where I would go, I've gone through periods of practice in my life where, like, the practice is intense and my emotional process that corresponds with it is intense. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's just an intensity to it. And then there's a lot of, most of the days, especially as a late, it's very mundane. It's like, it's like brushing my teeth. I do triangle pose, I do this, I do that, like, Maybe I have a, you know, I feel like a surge of prana after like a big backbend or something. But I'm not like deep in this whole crazy uh, making myself new again the way I have been at other times in my life. And I definitely have had times where I felt like I want to get on my mat and have this like big, deep experience or even like... I mean, when I would go to workshops to study Anusara Yoga, I'd be like, oh, I'm getting, like, I'm feeling a little, you know, tapped out on my, on my cup here. Let me, like, go get a hit from my yoga teacher in this big venue, and I'm going to, like, come back and be, like, basically a spaz. I mean, I would sometimes come home from these big events, and, like, I'd be dropping stuff. Mm -hmm. The lights would flicker. I was just, like, too much energy. I couldn't Mm -hmm. ground it. Mm-hmm. And it took me a really long time to realize, oh, I just needs to be super steady, almost mundane. I don't need to go to that really end range. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, that's so well said. And I think with anything, it's about balance. And I think that the difference is, or one thing that is important to know as yoga teachers, not just for yourself as a practitioner, just like you're saying, you need to, it's not all about pushing to the edge. And obviously as a teacher, you have to teach your students balance. Um, Which is the angel card I picked today, <laughs> today. by the way. Perfect. Um but if somebody is, if there's that seeking quality or that right. pushing quality, whether it's to feel the sensation in an asana or to experience something again in your mind, um, that that might be something to notice and be aware of. And then maybe your, your the way you teach changes. Um, well, or you think, I'm not going to do breath of fire. Or, I mean, I don't know. Because yeah. like, this person it might not be in a place where they can, where that might be healthy. Well, it's so tricky because as a teacher, it's alluring for the students to come back to you again and again and mm -hmm. again, right? Mm -hmm. Like if there's if they are hooked into the thing that you're offering, your class is full, you get paid. Yes. And it feels good. Yeah. I mean, sure. let's just like let let's be real about that. It just like feels good when sure. people come back. I mean, I'm not but like my ego's not uh I'm not unattached to my ego. It does sure. feel good when people show up. And I could ride that train into a very dark place Yeah. where I just keep giving out the thing that people come back they're for. coming back for. And ultimately, that might not be what I have discovered is actually the best thing I can give them is something they can do by themselves that where I become actually obsolete. Yeah. So, so maybe this is tied back to this idea of doubt where you're teaching people to not doubt in the sense that... Um, do I need to push my body that far? Is it about that? Or just right. what, what you've been exploring, is it more subtle? Same thing about the mind. You know, that my role at Windhorse was to introduce healthy doubt. So it's teaching a skill right. to, when you're listening to your own doubt. Like, what is the subtlety? Do I need to do it that way? What if I did it this way? And what does that feel like? And maybe that's what you're doing is teaching people, you know, please keep using that word doubt, but to explore other Right. possibilities, which really is what therapy is, is helping somebody to um, know that there is a different way things can be done. There's different paths. It's not just this way that you've been doing it. And I'm thinking of that word, too, curiosity, which is like, you know, at Naropa we talked about all the time, like cultivating curiosity about whatever is showing up mm -hmm. and this concept of doubt and curiosity. Mm -hmm even if the student doubts you mm -hmm. as a teacher. Like, that's sure. good. Yeah. When students start to think that what I'm saying is not for them, like, when they start to be like, mm, I don't know, maybe that's not true for me. I'm like, great, this is awesome. <laughs> Tell me more yeah. about that. Just because I'm teaching doesn't mean I'm the expert. Exactly. Yeah, same with therapy. Just like my mind is doing this thing doesn't mean that that's the truth. The truth. Yeah. Right. I wanted to ask you, like, have you ever taught in a class or were you – knowing somebody super well felt like there was some kind of red flag for you that somebody might be experiencing and then how and what what made you think or feel that way mm -hmm. not in teaching yoga per se I mean the best I could articulate in terms of the yoga of what I've experienced is um, kind of what I just mentioned about going to these like big Anusara events mm -hmm. that um, I'm sure some of the people who are listening would 
had have been and, and remember those there was a kind of there was something that was happening there for in a larger sense in a larger mm-hmm. sense and 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 because of the age I was at that time and my ego structure wasn't as strong my witness function wasn't as strong when I look at the version of me that came back from those events I have a red flag about myself mm-hmm. and I and like I've grounded them and oriented them and that's mm-hmm. all fine and good um, I have been around extreme states in a variety of contexts in my life, and I have seen it multiple times on the dance floor. I was not so not so much yeah. So yeah. some of you know, the listeners know, like that's sort of the 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 second practice that I've that is is coupled with the yoga and for me is um, the five rhythms dance practice. And I'm not a teacher of five rhythms, just an avid student. Um, but I have been in situations on the dance floor where there is very clearly yes. a psych- like a psychotic situation yeah. happening. Um, and uh, I resonated with a lot of what you shared, like what you had noticed coming up in your body. Mm-hmm. That is true for me as well. Something very similar. Like it just, the person feels like they are just somewhere else. And in some cases, even like there is another energy that's like coming through them. Um, whether maybe that's the storyline that's in their mind or I don't know what it is, mm-hmm. but there's some other energy that's maybe that they're like so vacated out of their body that I'm picking up on mm-hmm. something else. But yes, I have experienced that. Yeah. yeah. And that, and again, the cultural element too of, how we're talking about that right now versus if that was in a different um, culture, that that kind of other ener- channeling another energy or, or dance like that could be seen right. differently. But then, how do you know? Because we are in living where and the time we do and the place we do, could that be dangerous? For somebody to mm-hmm. go to that place, um, maybe not necessarily in a yoga class, but especially as movement um, body teachers, we have to have, I mean, we have an ethical duty to um, help keep the people we're working with Mm -hmm. safe. And there's a difference between an extreme state and an altered state. Absolutely. Right? Like, okay, how many times have you, I don't know if you've experienced this, but, and I'm saying this to the listeners too, like, you know, you leave yoga and you feel like a little altered. Yeah. You know, you gotta like, yeah, it's a nap, right? And you gotta like walk slow to your car and like take your time and like the trees seem more glittery and like everybody seems better. Like you, you, you have that, and it's a shame that we have to call that the altered state. I think that that's really the state we should be living in, and this sort of uh, muffled state that we iPhone looking, the iPhone looking. That's actually the altered state. Yeah. Um, which science is now telling us is actually true. Or like giving birth. I mean, you're definitely in an altered state. Like you don't walk around (laughs) every day (laughs) saying the things that you say when you're giving birth to a baby. Like it's just, that's an altered state for sure. So I think there's a, there is some difference between the extreme extreme state and an altered state. Yeah, for sure. And and extreme being something that's not easy to return from or to ground or to make sense of more permanent I would say than an altered state uh-huh not that extreme states are permanent right 
But I, I and I do want to just say in all this conversation about psychosis and extreme states that we all have extremes, um, and we all have certain times in our life where our mind and our mind is very capable of going to these extremes. So for me, one difference is really noticing when that happens. If you can witness the extreme nature of your mind, um, and that is that is a, a huge tool for me in my work at Windhorse, or was in my work at Windhorse, and I'm sure is for you and other um, teachers or therapists, is to, if you can notice your mind going to extremes and what, and like this is what you were saying about OCD or whatever it is, um, you can notice when it's happening, you know what it feels like when your mind is that place, you know what it feels like in your body, and then you can watch it. You're not trying to get rid of it, you're not trying to scramble out of it, but you can watch it and tolerate it until it dissipates, and just accepting that your mind has extreme places, that you're not perfect, you're not other, like this person who's psychotic is over here, that could very well be you or I. Right. You know, like we've all, we all have that ability to go to these extremes in our mind. Right. So I just wanted to to say that. Yeah, thank you for saying that, and you say it so beautifully. And it ties in perfectly, like, Okay, Lars and the Real Girl. I feel like this this is the movie you should watch. I think I have watched it, but it's been a this long time. This is the one where he, so the Ryan guy, lo- yeah, he decides that he's going to get a girlfriend, and the girlfriend is a blow-up doll, like a life-size blow-up doll, and the community, instead of making him bad for it, plays along, mm-hmm. like totally plays along. With, I mean, this doll is for real, like, she is real. She comes to She's, dinner. Yeah, she comes to dinner. They go on dates. She is the real girl. And so, um, and the community just, like, rallies behind him and completely indulges this fantasy. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the movie, he eventually gives up the fantasy. Mm-hmm. He actually does, like, emerge. It's, like, almost like when you outgrow an imaginary friend. Like, mm-hmm. he outgrew the delusion and actually did meet somebody else. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that movie always makes me think about Windhorse and basic attendance and well, for like, sure. I mean, believing that, people that and that is like it, that is what it's about. So if you are with somebody and they have not just one person, but they have a whole team of people that they can not only talk to about what their extremes are, but then feel like they're not necessarily sick and they're being right. held and they can share it and. Um, there's people that have their backs and are shielding them sometimes from their families who just want their kid to get better. Don't mm-hmm. be, you're sick, get better, Windhorse, fix. Mm-hmm. But if you don't feel sick and, and you have this whole group of people that you've got to know that are around you, then the real girl, this delusion, you don't need because you're not alone. Mm-hmm. You have a community mm-hmm. who's bringing you into the present moment in very specific, intentional, and also not intentional ways to help you come into your body, come into the here and now, um, through community, essentially. Which is just like what you just said about the movie. Well, and I think one of the overarching things there is like, we're not designed to be isolated in our own little minds, in our own little realities. It's good to go there and abide there every day, Mm -hmm. and ultimately we come from there and we'll go back to Mm there. But... Like, yeah, it's good to hang out with ourselves every day. It's good to have an inner life. Mm-hmm. And when the inner life becomes consumptive, absolutely, 
like thank goodness to have community and a wider circle and shared reality and yeah um, that's actually my I think it's either in this book or another book that Dr. Palco wrote specifically about loneliness mm. and um, Frida from Reichman who was a union uh, psychoanalysis very famous taught at Chestnut Lodge um, who's also kind of in the lineage of Windhorst she wrote a lot about working with people who are actively psychotic and the deep dark depths of being totally alone and how they kind of go ride hand in hand so. there's a lot of things about motherhood I could say about that yes absolutely in culture but me too um, different different, different topic for a different day <laughs> okay well um Lexi, thanks for giving us all your time and your expertise. And um, and for all of you listening, I, um, I hope you've enjoyed just a little foray, uh, walk through this terrain with Lexi and, um, and myself. And I'm so glad that you've been with us. And um, Lexi, does Windhorse and or you have a website that you want to send people to? Yes, Windhorse does have a website. If you Google Windhorse um, in Boulder, it'll come right up. It's called Windhorse Community Services, Inc., and it's located in North Boulder. Um, and my website, um, I'm currently working not in this realm, although extreme states show up everywhere, um, but I'm working with parents who've experienced difficult births, whatever they, that might mean to them. So you all, if you want to find out more about Lexi, go to spaciousgroundcounseling.com. And if you are local and you want to have a chat with her, I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. And um, thanks for tuning in.